0: midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today
1: we know the stories about how badly our schools fail kids who live in poverty and children of color but where are schools figuring that problem out and doing better Ed Trust Midwest has spent some time identifying schools that are beating the odds. We're going to talk with them about what they found and meet the principal of a school that is doing better than most. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. As always thanks for joining us so when we talk about education we often talk about the aspects of our schools that are falling short for students and families and educators and we do that for really good reason it's because there are many ways that we fail to make sure especially in this state that all students have access to the best education That's especially true for low-income students and students of color. But a recent project by the group Education Trust Midwest takes a more positive look at schools that are finding solutions to some of those problems. It has created a list of what it calls Building the Hope Schools, which awards schools for demonstrating instructional growth and achievement wins for students of color and low-income students. We want to talk all hour today about the way those students often face extra hurdles in our education system and how these particular schools are trying to help. And that's where we begin the conversation today. And We've got two people who are at the center of this issue to help us think it through. James Kinsey is principal of Thomas Jefferson Elementary in South Rutherford Schools, which is one of Education Trust Midwest's Building the Hope Schools, awarded for demonstrating instructional growth and achievement wins for students of color and low-income students. James Kinsey, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, good to be here. Uh, Also with us is Dr. Tabitha Bentley, and she is the Director of Policy and Research with Education Trust Midwest. Dr. Bentley, welcome to Detroit Today as well.
2: Hi, Stephen. thank you so much for having us.
1: So Dr. Bentley, I'm gonna start with you. Tell us what the idea is behind building the Hope Schools and how you came up with this list of schools that you say are doing better with these children.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to be sharing um, just some of the stories with you this morning. Uh, so at the Education Trust Midwest, we strongly believe that all students can learn at high levels and um, we especially hold that belief for students of color and students from low-income backgrounds. Um, and moreover, Stephen, we believed that this work was being done here in the state of Michigan. And I know you, you framed that we often talk about what's not going right with education, but we knew that there were schools and districts and leaders and educators that were doing something um, particularly special with uh, different students and students from different backgrounds. And so we, were, we went on a quest to find those schools, and we were looking for schools that were intentionally supporting students' academic growth um, and achievement, um, and that we're providing students and families with culturally ling- and linguistically affirming uh, school practices, and we just we're making sure that students were flourishing learners. And that's exactly what we found with our Building the Hope group. Um, these are schools where there are consistent and strong academic gains for students of color and students coming from low income backgrounds, and they're also proving to be affirming places for uh, these students to learn.
1: Hmm. So those. Hurdles that I mentioned that often get in the way for low income students and students of color, uh, what do they look like, and in what ways are some schools failing these students and then talk about what the schools that you 're identifying are doing differently?
2: yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that question, and you know when I think about hurdles, stephen i I really think about. What are the hurdles that, you know, our, our system has in place <laughs> that are making it very hard for um, students of color and students from low-income backgrounds to find really great schools and for parents to find really great schools to send their children to? You know, I, I think about um, just our, our, our funding, our school funding model that, you know, is, is not really adequate to support and give resources, uh, particularly for students in an equitable way, to make sure that students with the greatest need um, have, the, you know, gr- the greatest access to those resources that could really support their learning. You know, I I think about, you know, our our distribution of teachers and and where strong teachers are and how there's really a disincentive um, for strong teachers and experienced teachers to stay in schools that serve um, those populations as well. And Mm. so those are just some of the hurdles that are um, being faced uh, across uh, our our state and across these schools. Um, But what I love about our Building the Hope schools is that they are finding ways (laughs) to 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 really serve students at the highest levels. And so one of those things that I really appreciated across all of our Building the Hope schools was that they have a strong drive for results. So they're they're looking at student data, and they're really trying to understand where students are, um, and they're engaging students in their own data, and they're engaging students in where they are and how they can make progress on their own goals, their academic goals. Um, in particular, and they also believe that students really can learn at high levels and I know that sounds simple um, but it really is an important piece of the, the learning uh, puzzle and so again there they are many of the schools that uh, we have or are, are inaugural building the hope schools they, they do face some of those those struggles and those systematic barriers um, but they're also finding really really huge um, acute ways to, and strategies to, to cross those hurdles.
1: Hmm. So, so I also want to talk just a little about the argument that we have been having for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years here in Michigan about Mm -hmm. school governance and what difference that makes. Uh, The charter school uh, movement in this state is, is one of the most robust anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. And we've Mm -hmm. had... A long-running argument about what effect those schools have not only yeah. on the children who attend them but also on the public schools that uh, that now have to compete with uh, these charter schools there's there there are funding questions of course there are standards questions but I wonder how that figures into the work that you guys are doing and, and whether you feel like um, uh, governance, uh, governance matters in these schools that you're seeing uh, achieve beyond what what the, the the sort of norm is, and whether there are particular kinds of governance that seem to to be more likely to produce the outcomes that uh, you're looking for.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, and, I, and I will say, Stephen, that I really do believe in research facts that strong school practices matter um, and strong, uh, really, really strong school practices and a, school, a strong school climate matters. Mm. And what I will say, particularly with our Building the Hope schools, is that we have a mix of, you know, traditional um, public schools. And we also do have a charter school that was uh, Building the Hope school, particularly Hamtramck Academy um, in Hamtramck, uh, Michigan. And so it the The commonality across all these schools is that the practices that they use and the strategies that they use within the school provide for a very strong climate um, for students to learn um, and to flourish and so when they're when they 're practicing those things and they have those strategies in place they 're going to be strong and whether it 's traditional or charter hmm.
1: so uh, James Kinsey, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Talk about what goes on in your school, but first tell us just a little about your school, where it is, who attends, and what kind of culture and ethos, I guess you're trying to build uh, at Thomas Jefferson Elementary.
0: Okay, uh, Thomas Jefferson Elementary, we're on the south side of Redford. We're uh, right off of West Chicago in between Beach Daily and Inkster. Uh, We service um, around 230 students um, we have a really, uh, it's a really family oriented, uh, type fill. Um, I'm not sure how much, um, our listeners know about Redford, but, uh, Redford ha- actually has two school districts. One is mm-hmm. Redford union, uh, and then the, uh, South side of Redford, uh, we have four elementaries, uh, one middle school and, and Thurston high school. Um, so, uh, one good thing about this community over here is it's a family fill community. Um, some of our teachers who work here actually went to school here. Uh, some other teachers who are here actually had teachers, uh, their teacher, uh, or some of my teachers, their teacher actually works here. So it's just a very interesting uh, uh, thing to see, you know, a teacher working down the hallway from one of their students, from one of their former students. So uh, that's the type of community. Um, uh, we, we, uh, have a model. Our, our model is to be safe, be kind and be leaders. Hmm. Um, we push that and everything that we do, um, uh, because we feel like that's not just for school. We just want, uh, we look at that for just, just being a good human being in this world. Um, we have a pledge. We, uh, one of our, our, our pledge is to, um, uh, you know, it's to be safe, be kind and be leaders and, um, and st- our students know that, you know, it's you're going to make mistakes. You know, grown people make mistakes and we're easy. We let kids know, hey, look, we mess up t- sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but a- in that model, we say each day we get better and better. So the goal is not to return back to some of those mistakes. You know, you learn from them. Um, and then we talk about honoring their teacher, honoring their family and then honoring yourself and in, in the, in the decisions that they make. Um, and then we find that that kind of culture it kind of permeates our school. Uh, you see it in something a lot of the conversations from our kids, definitely from the teachers, um, our parents. Um, so it's just a a warm feeling. That's what our community feels like.
1: So I, I I really wonder if you can tell us about some of the challenges that you face with uh, with your your school community within your school community. Uh, what those look like, and and I guess how you think of those challenges, whether you find yourself having to kind of design uh, the school's response uh, to, to, to things around the specific challenges the, that you find in your building.
0: Um, so challenges would be more, you know, in, in terms of like just funding, uh, for example, we have uh, interventionist, um, our interventionist uh, services, uh, for the most part, grades K three. Uh, but we know that that's not where the only need, the needs in our building are not just going to be at K three, which means if we had two interventionists, that would be better, you know, to have someone service grades four and five as well. We pre K to fifth grade. So we have needs at every grade level. And it's really just the number of people that we have to service those needs. So, um you know, we make do with what we have and we figure out creative ways to make things work. But there's only so many people and there's only so much time in a day uh, to really meet all of the needs that um, our kids come with.
1: Hmm. And I, I also wonder if you can talk about the journey, I guess, that maybe you've you've been on. So so a lot of schools are high performing or growing achievement now. But in the past, had a, a really different existence maybe they struggled more maybe they didn't have enough of the resources that they needed to to do better or maybe they didn't have the right leadership in place to make sure that everything was working can you can you talk about how things have changed i guess in your in your school over time and and what changed uh, what brought you to the idea that you could do better and, and to the reality now where you're able to, to perform at a higher level?
0: Um, it's really what, you know, my thing is is really what you believe about kids. And I said, and I said my thing, that's really our school thing. I, I feel like we believe that kids can learn. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, where you can, came from, what your family structure might be we believe that you can learn all we need all we need is if for for you to be here if you're here we can teach you um and then there's some practices that we um tie everything around um like our instructional guidance system you know we make sure that uh we have a common tool that goes across all grade levels uh for ela and for math so uh, our kids know you know hey this is what we do for math so it creates a system uh, that you do from preschool all the way through fifth grade same thing for ela um, we are big on professional development and, and building the skill set. We have a, uh, tremendous coaches, um, in our building, um, that work with teachers. Um, they go into classrooms, perform observations, give feedback, and the teachers are very open and welcome to that kind of feedback. Um, our partnerships with parents, we have a, a solid system for the way that we communicate with parents, um, we use a, a, a program called Classroom Dojo. If any educators are online, um, you know, try it out if you haven't used it yet. But uh, teachers and parents, they can, its all it works almost just like text messaging. They can text back and forth, you know, for whatever, you know, needs to happen with their kids. And, and we feel like that's a big piece of the uh, of puzzle is those partnerships that we have with parents. Uh, we believe in a student learning, um, a student-centered learning environment. Uh, we want our kids to know hey look um you know i talked about our model earlier but just academic hey look this is how you're performing right now let's talk about some goals let's set some goals to talk about you know what needs to happen for you to reach that next marker wherever you know wherever it is you need to go hmm. um we have a super strong social worker in our building who works um you know really hard you know, with our kids um they tend to you know she she just does a wonderful job with them. And then we have a distributed leadership model, you know, because I don't want to be a sage on the stage or anything like that. Um, we have strong people. If I'm not here, if I'm away at a meeting, uh, we have people that step up in the building and they can they just know what to do. Mm.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about how schools can achieve better, and we want to hear from you. What are your positive experiences with K-12 schools, your time as a student, a parent, an educator, or even just a casual onlooker? What are some of the things you've seen educators do right? What were some of the things that have stuck with you throughout your life that maybe a teacher did? to make your educational experience better? And what do you think we need to be doing in a broader sense to support teachers and other educators in making making possible uh, the better outcomes that we all want. We also want to hear especially from folks who are working or attending uh, schools that uh, have high numbers of kids who live in poverty or large numbers of students of color, uh, the two really risk groups that uh, that we see especially here in Michigan. What are your experiences with schools that actually work? Again 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about education and schools and how some schools manage to outperform the odds, how they manage to thrive, even though they face tremendous challenges uh, from outside and from inside. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation especially tell us about your experience with schools that work do you live in a community where you feel like the schools uh, are really effective at overcoming challenges like uh, the number of kids who live in poverty Uh, do you live in a district where students of color who often Uh, are left behind uh, in our education system uh, are actually counted and invested in and where they're actually thriving. Uh, We want to hear what happens in those schools uh, that you think is different from schools where they're not able uh, to do that. Um, uh, Also, give us a call and tell us about your own educational experiences. Was there someone or some school that uh, in your life really influenced the way that uh, you can be successful today? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, Put comments there, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We've got two great guests with us right now talking about this issue. James Kinsey is principal of Thomas Jefferson Elementary in South Redford schools. That is one of the Education Trust Midwest's Building the Hope schools which is awarded for demonstrating instructional growth and achievement wins for students of color and low income students. Also with us is Dr. Tabitha Bentley, Director of Policy and Research with Education Trust Midwest. We also wanna hear from you uh, about your ideas to change the way we deal with schools here uh, in Michigan in a way that would make it easier for schools to thrive across the board think of all the the disparities that we have just here in southeast Michigan uh, between uh, districts that have access to a tremendous amount of resources and districts that don't uh, think of the outcomes that we see uh, that are different what do you think could be different policy wise at the state level uh, to produce more equal outcomes. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, put comments there. We'll work you into the the conversation. Uh, Dr. Bentley, I want to come back to you. Uh, What are you seeing more broadly in terms of the way that the pandemic uh, has affected uh, low-income students and students of color? And what specific things have these building the Hope Schools been doing to try to meet those challenges on top of the ones that they have all the time?
2: Yeah, yeah Thanks, Stephen. I, I, I every time I'm asked that question about how has the pandemic impacted our students, you know, my uh, my heart just goes out for students and teachers during this time because it's been it's been tough. It's been really really tough in schools. Um, for, for parents, for educators, for children, and no one is, is leaving this, this time and, and place unscathed. Um, and even research tells us that it's going to be tough for us to catch up and, and for us to get back on track. Um, while we were in the thick of the pandemic, there was an analysis that was released um, that was estimating that American students, you know, could lose up to five or to, you know, nine months of learning or have unfinished learning. And that was even more for students of color. I think the estimate was around six to 12 months. And as educators are getting back into the classroom, um, I'm, I'm sure that they are seeing um, that to be true. And they're trying to think of how, how do we... Um, How are we making up for that unfinished learning? What are we going to do to accelerate student learning for all the things that, you know, perhaps we weren't able to cover um, in a virtual setting, you know, while we were – while many, many students were um, not in school building. So you're absolutely right. There has been a challenge. This pandemic has added a challenge, and it also disproportionately impacted students of color and students from low-income backgrounds. Um, But one of the things that I'm really encouraged about with our Building the Hope Schools is that they're extremely responsive and they're extremely proactive, um, and that's one of the commonalities across all four schools. Um, we're talking about being responsive to parent engagement. I know James mentioned um, their communication tool um, with parents, and um, many of our other schools, too, have you know, those tools or have ways of just engaging parents in a very meaningful way so that they can support their child in their learning, and that's a really important piece. I think another way that they're being very responsive um, in light of the pandemic and just in, in general is around their curriculum and instruction. You know, they many of these schools are using, you know, culturally responsive pedagogies. You know, they're making sure that students um, are seeing themselves in, in, in books and curriculums and perspectives um, mm-hmm. within the classroom and across the school and even on, you know, the, the classroom walls or the school walls. Um, and the teachers are engaged in that conversation, too. Um, to make sure that, you know, they're, they're understanding various perspectives and that um, students are coming in with or families are, you know, presenting. And so that's a very important piece, and that's an encouraging piece for me that I'm seeing across all these schools as well. And the last thing I want to mention um, that I think is really important in light of the pandemic is that they're responsive and proactive around behavior and discipline. You know, I mean, one of the, the studies have shown, and um, so much research is, uh, estimating around this, the, the challenges around mental health and socio emotional health and how that might impact behavior and discipline in classrooms and in schools. And I, I think our Building the Hope schools are really doing um, a great job of being responsive to that um, and finding ways to support relationship building with students um, and, you know, making sure that those relationships are there so that, you know, dis- discipline issues are reduced and re- reinforcing positive behavior for students with rewards as well.
1: So, so James, I wonder if you can talk as well about what things look like in your school because of the pandemic. We're now almost 18 months into the tremendous disruptions that uh, we've all experienced because of that. Uh, does that make things tougher? Uh, is it something that you guys have uh, adapted to now and gotten used to and, and figured out a rhythm to, to continue Uh, the good work, tell us what what that looks like in your your school.
0: Yes, thank you for that question. Um, uh, First, I wanna begin by just, my hat goes off to um, our our families who actually became teachers uh, last year during the pandemic. Um, I feel like parents are teachers all the time, but they really became teachers as they had to sit next to their children while they're trying to work and help their children uh uh work um on some of the things that our our teachers put together for them and then hats go off to my teachers too because there was a lot of work to to uh build an online curriculum for students and take and upload everything that we try to do here face to face into a computer so that students can do it at home um, and um um um, Dr. Bentley mentioned some of the inequities, you know, just some things that happened, um, that we noticed that you probably, you know, that never really got considered is, you know, does everyone have uh, good internet at home? We all know how frustrating it can be when you get the spinning circle in your computer and things are not loading fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then do they actually have a device at home? Um, so it was a lot of things like that, that, you know, uh, had to be taken into consideration, um you know so one of the things that we did is our district gave a Chromebook to any family who needed one um we also gave hotspots because we understand that the internet at home once, you know if you have you know 3 or 4 uh, uh children at home and 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 you have work too that's a lot of bandwidth being used up at the same time so we offered families hotspots as well um and then now fast forward for our students coming back um it's some of the some the gaps are obvious um we we of course did the best that we can i feel like uh, our families did the best that they can the best that they could uh but some of the gaps are obvious that uh, just regular face-to-face teaching there's a lot that goes into it when you have Mm -hmm. children right there in the classroom when you're uh, assessing kids when you're teaching you're asking questions it's a little different when you're trying to do that through a computer so the children still moved up a grade level however some of those of the unfinished learn they were not there so uh, we uh, adopted a program called acceleration uh, this year as a district and what acceleration is is we teach students still at grade level there's a lot of research out there that supports that students still need to have uh, exposure to grade level material however one of the things that we do is before we teach any unit is we do screeners and diagnostic assessments to see where gaps and holes are. And then during our intervention time, our teachers uh, and paraprofessionals, they do a good job helping students plug in those holes. So then that way uh, they can be successful with those grade level skills that they need to learn. Hmm.
1: Hmm. And uh, James, as you get deeper into life with the pandemic and and adapt, are you worried that the gains that you'd already made, the, the the achievements that were unfolding in your building, won't be able to sustain, or that you might have you know a, a little bit of a setback and and have to to pivot to to, to keep going forward? What does that look like?
0: Um, if there's one thing that I've learned, and this is probably my, over my probably my 25th year in education, is that you have to adapt. You have to adapt. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, I I don't think that we're not gonna be able to get it back. It's just uh, figuring out exactly, okay, let's analyze what it is that we're doing and keeping a constant measure on, is it working? And I believe as long as we have that, uh, as we talked about earlier, that belief that uh, kids can learn, uh, kids do an amazing job of meeting you know, whatever expectations you put out there before, um, it's just up to us uh, uh, adults to figure out the, 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 the pathway to make it happen. So can we get it again? Yeah, I'm pretty confident that we will.
1: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bentley, I want to ask you about what you think other schools who are not yet part of building the hope schools yeah. could look at here to kind of take for themselves and and say, well, we could do this too. Uh, we mm-hmm. could we could get to the place where these other these other schools have have gotten. If you had a, a just a, a a short checklist of things, what what would that look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I really admire about our building the hope schools um, across all four of them is that you know they're intentional about progress and growth, and so. Yes, they are demonstrating great progress, um, but they also know they're not perfect. <laughs> they also know there is more work to be done. And um, if they had, as I know James mentioned, you know, the interventionists, like if they had more resources, they're very sure that they could do more <laughs> for their students mm. and more for their families. And so one of the things that I just admire about all of them is that that intentionality around growth and progress. And I think mm. that is one thing, um, just a mentality and a belief. Um, that can, you know, be easily scaled (laughs) in anywhere. Mm -hmm. What can we do more for our students? How can we um, really be uh, supporting them in in any measure and scaling any measure around progress and growth? Um, I'm also thinking about just how, you know, to your point about a checklist, um, I think one of those points is checking your belief. and James has mentioned this many times over, but do you really believe that students can learn? And if not, what, do we, what is the professional development that teachers need to be, um, be engaged in to really check some of those beliefs and to really look at some of the school practices that are impeding um, the growth or impeding um, just uh, students' progress within schools, because it really does start with the belief. I think another um, part of that checklist, Stephen, is around um, just how instruction and uh, the curricular resources are built. I think one of the things I was so impressed by with our um, Building the Hope Schools is how intentional they were about um, uh, the way they've set up their school schedules. Um, the way that they set up, you know, school discipline policies just everything is um, structured in such a way to support student growth, you know, the, the, um, the instruction is um, airtight, it's research-based, it's evidence-based, um, it is, uh, there are just so many ways where they are um, removing and eliminating barriers for students to do well in their schools, and those are things that, and conversations that I think any school can engage in. Hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, This was a really great conversation, and I'm really thankful to both of you, James Kinsey and Dr. Tabitha Bentley, uh, for joining us. Uh, Wonderful work, and uh, and keep it up. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Okay. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about disparities in our K-12 schools with University of Michigan School of Education Dean, Dr. Elizabeth Moji. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you would like to see change in education policy in Michigan to deal with the great disparities that we live with, especially the ones here that we have in Southeast Michigan. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. To Detroit today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about schools, about education, about the disparities that we see among schools in our community and in our state, and how we deal with those disparities. How do we address those disparities in a way that moves us toward a space where there's high quality education available for everybody, regardless of their family income, or regardless of their ethnic background. We just heard from uh, an official with Ed Trust Midwest, uh, which is busy trying to identify schools that are kind of outliers among. Uh, all of our schools, that are doing better with kids who come from impoverished backgrounds and kids of color. We also met a principal of a school in Redford uh, that is one of those uh, schools, one of those standouts. Uh, We want to change the subject just a little here and welcome back a familiar voice on the program. Dr. Elizabeth Moji is the dean of the University of Michigan's School of Education. Dr. Moji, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Steven. It's
3: great to be back.
1: Yes, it's great to be here. Uh, So, I I just want to start with uh, the achievement gap itself. Uh, This achievement gap that exists between students of color and low-income students compared to others here in Michigan. Talk about how Michigan stacks up uh, and how Southeast Michigan maybe stands out uh, for those disparities.
3: Well, Stephen, one thing uh, that's important to note is we in education really like to talk about this as an opportunity gap versus mm-hmm. an achievement gap
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, because, you know, the achievement is a function of the opportunities that children have to learn. And Absolutely. so when we think about that um, and we think about some of the challenges that Michigan and particularly Southeast Michigan uh, is facing, then you you know what I'm going to say that we are not doing as well as other states in mm. terms of providing opportunity for our children to learn, providing equitable opportunities for our children to learn. Uh, we know that there are funding issues, and I don't, I didn't uh, get to hear all of Dr. Bentley and Mr. Kinsey's comments, but I imagine they talked about some of the inequities in funding, Mm -hmm. uh, the distribution of resources around the state uh, to support children's learning. And, And, you know, we know that's a problem in the state of Michigan, and we have to work on that problem if we want to see children's achievement as measured, you know, when usually we're talking about standardized tests. Um, As measured in those assessments, if we want to see that change, we have to provide equitable opportunities to learn, which means equitable distribution of resources, not equal, not equal distribution, equitable
1: distribution. Mm. Yeah. So you and I have had this conversation before about the difference between equal uh, and equitable. But for listeners who who may not understand that distinction, talk just a little bit about what we mean and about how the awareness I guess of that distinction is starting at least to drive policy at the state level here
3: great question and happy to review that so you know the idea we all think equality is um, a really sensible goal where we believe at least that um, our nation is founded on this idea of, uh, you know equal opportunity but in fact some people have more resources to begin with, and so if they get exactly the same resources for, uh, you know, education that other people who don't have those resources get, then that's not actually equal. Um, and so this—it's a sort of false sense when we hand out exactly the same amounts of money or other kinds of, you know, technology tools, et cetera, to um, people across the state because, in fact, some are languishing. They don't have those resources, and so they're not getting the same benefit from the same uh, distribution of resources. So an equitable distribution is one that actually meets the needs of particular populations. So we know If someone's living in, uh, you know, let's just pick an urban area, but we could also say this about rural areas. If we're living in spaces where uh, Internet uh, has not been um, Internet access has not been provided due to past policies Mm -hmm. where, you know, telecommunications companies didn't actually wire parts of cities they called that redlining um, because it wasn't worth it, like they didn't think they would get the sales. Then when we simply say we're going to give out some technology tool, that means that the children in those areas where they don't have strong internet access or even any aren't going to be able to use those technology tools. So everybody might get the same tool, but some people can use it and others can't. That's inequitable distribution Mm -hmm. of resources. We need to provide The resources that people need, not distribute everything equally.
1: Yeah,
3: Um, I do think, as you said, that we're starting to attend to that and recognize that when state funding is distributed, um, and then some, um, you know, neighborhoods, some communities can uh, raise extra dollars for education, and others cannot because of you know the the economic challenges in those communities then the schools in the communities where there are economic challenges and they don't have the resources from the state that they need those schools can't thrive and then we start to see crumbling infrastructure again the lack of technology access and that all became very very evident in the pandemic uh, because we saw that some children could get right online and continue learning robustly or at least as robustly as possible uh, in a completely remote environment and other children simply could not. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have the broadband access. And when they did have it, it was really spotty. I can tell you many stories about people trying to work with children whose internet was just constantly, uh, you know, failing. And that's not a learning environment that will sustain growth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we talk about addressing that gap uh, at, at the state level, um, you, you know we have a lot of data now about what it would take and what we would need to do in order to start narrowing uh, those differences. Uh, catch us up, though, on on where we are with that. Th- these are reports that have now been around for a while. Uh, how much influence are they having over mm. decision making when we think of things like budgeting and other policy decisions that come out of Lansing?
3: That's uh, a great question. I think the reports have been influential. So um, I want to really, you know, commend, for example, Ed Trust Michigan uh, for making very clear, very um, accessible reports that help people think through these issues um, we launched Michigan you know a number of different efforts to uh, raise attention to these issues so I do think people have a different understanding than they had five ten uh, certainly 20 years ago and this has been you know this hasn't this isn't a new issue but we're starting to see the understanding now what we need to think about is how do we actually enact change. And that's where I still see some gaps. Um, What are the changes we need and how do we make them happen? And, you know, one of my um, soapbox (laughs) uh, arguments is that we need a far better, um, uh, well-prepared, diverse teaching force, and we need to support teachers. And I did hear a bit about from Dr. Bentley and Mr. Kinsey about resources. Teachers need support resources. Teachers need more training than Mm -hmm. ever before. Teachers need to be paid more. And those are the places where um, all of those things cost money, obviously, and we're not seeing the movement. We're aware that these things have to happen, but putting that into action, I think, is the challenge for for all
1: of us. Yeah, yeah. So I, I also want to talk about the kind of practical side of this that uh, that you and the university are involved in, and that's right here in the city of Detroit, where at the former campus of Marygrove College, we now have a public high school. Uh, that is managed in partnership between the Detroit Public Schools uh, and the University of Michigan School of Education. Uh, What do these disparities look like in your school that's now been operating for a few years? Uh, And tell us what you're learning about the challenges and how they present themselves and how you have to to meet them, I guess, on a day-to-day basis.
3: Right, Great question. Um, the first thing I'll say is that we also now have early education. So we have uh, mm-hmm. birth to five-year-olds and we uh, even with through Starfish Family Services and the University of Michigan School of Nursing work with expecting parents. And that is really important. That early education piece is one of the ways that we're trying to actually intervene on these disparities and really provide strong foundation. The second thing I'll say is that in addition to our high school, which will be uh, fully uh, filled out next year, ninth through 12th grade, um, Mm -hmm. will will be in place. We will also be launching kindergarten, first and second grade. And that that will be next year in the fall of 22. And what's exciting about that and why uh, this matters to your question about working on these disparities that we will now be able to start building a true vertical alignment. What that Mm -hmm. means is we're constantly thinking about where the child is going next and where they came from so that the teachers and the leaders of both the early education center, which is run by Starfish Family Services, and then Detroit Public Schools Community District, k 12 all in conjunction with the University of Michigan School of Education, we're going to be able to think about how we ensure that all the teachers and leaders know what their children have experienced and what they still need to experience. Hmm. And that um, I heard Dr. Bentley talking about, you know, the, the Hope Schools being intentional about progress and growth. And this idea that we're going to be mapping that, We're going to be following children over time. That is a key to really intervening on learning and recognizing that we will have to make change. So the other piece that's important here is that we're, as researchers, going to be able to study what's happening, not so we can go write papers about it, but so that we can actually help inform the need to change practice, Hmm. to add supports, um, and and to self-assess and be willing to change when practice isn't serving children well. So that combination of having a strong evidence base as we are building the school, having vertical alignment, really knowing where a child is going and where they've come from, and then using evidence continually improving. Um, those three things I think are absolutely critical to building uh, a school that can support children's learning. The other thing I will say is that you know both uh, DPSCD and Starfish Family Services uh, have, like the University of Michigan School of Education, adopted an anti-racist approach to teaching. Our approach is all about social justice and ensuring that we're not just not racist in our practice, (laughs) but that we're explicitly anti-racist, that Mm -hmm. we're really investigating the systems and structures that perpetuate uh, this kind of discriminatory
1: practice. And uh, this concept that uh, you're working with, which is called, I think, P20, which is the, the idea of uh, staying with uh, a child as they progress through uh, through education, um, it, you know that's that's a it's a newish concept, I guess. But but I wonder if if you can talk about some of the things that you're already that you're already learning uh, at at, at Marygrove. The 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 idea of this is so different than the way we do it almost every place else. I wonder if you can give us just a little preview of what 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 we're learning.
3: Sure. Well, of course, you know, right now our our most um extensive database is nine through 11th grade. Uh-huh. Um so we don't have a, you know, we can't really talk about what it's going to mean uh yet with evidence uh, to have a child who is starting at the early ed center and going all the way through. But I will tell you this, one observation we made was um, when we opened the early education center, one of the fathers, you know, brought his little one in, maybe three years old, and pointed over to the liberal arts building, which is the high school, and said to this little guy, "That's where you're going to be going to high school. That's that will be your school." And it that was really um, heartwarming for me that there was a vision, um, you know, this sort of long term community sense that this is where you will be. This is your home, your educational home for the next 12 years. Um, that was exciting, I guess, longer than 12 years. Um, and, and that that's exemplified what we're trying to get to. Now, our ninth, 10th, and 11th uh, graders are doing unbelievably well, uh, given all the disruptions that we've experienced. And I have to credit the teachers, and the leadership and Detroit Public Schools Community District for the work that they've done. It's been incredibly difficult, as you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. All last year was remote and, you know, uh, part of, well, March from March on um, was, you know, remote and very bumpy and we were all scrambling. So it was difficult. It wasn't perfect. But I will say um, when we started in ninth grade, we had one of the highest attendance rates in the district Mm-hmm. And even in 10th grade, during the pandemic, when attendance dropped across across the nation, really, we had one of the highest attendance rates. So we're very proud of that. We believe that it says something about the community that's being built at the school. Um, you may have seen that uh, we had a, a ninth grader um, she was the rising 10th grader at the time write an op-ed and publish it in the Detroit Free Press about her experience at the school at Marygrove and wow. about feeling cared for and loved and supported and learning things she had never learned before. She says in the letter, I've never had teachers talk to me about some of these things before. Um, so that, that kind of opportunity to learn, we believe is just incredibly robust and exciting. And, and it's very important that all teachers love their students, not, you know, sometimes we think that elementary school teachers love their students and high school teachers love their subjects. But (laughs) actually what we're demonstrating is this is the coming together of rigorous subject matter learning and love and care for the human being. So -hmm. we're really happy about that. We are uh, in our design thinking and engineering courses, which every child takes. We are developing um, this year a robotics course Hmm. that actually is um, built, designed from the first year robotics course at the University of Michigan. Oh, wow. So the students, yeah, they're having the, the high school version of this course. And it's wow. really exciting and okay. really powerful. And I can hear your music playing. Yeah. So
1: I, <laughs> I know. As always, we never have enough time <laughs> <laughs> for all the things we want to talk about. But I'm really grateful that you came on the show today to catch us up on uh, on all of the things that are happening. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you,
3: thank yeah.
1: you, Stephen. It's pleasure. That's going to do it for us this week. I'll be back on Monday. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station.